I am excited today to be with you. I've been gone the last two weeks. I have been out of country. I was in South Africa, and so I had a great time. I had a great trip, uh, and I was just so blessed because I got to leave it in just great hands. Uh, Erica and Charity took care of everything while I was gone, and I had a friend text me this week uh, and said, look, basically when you're gone and Erica preaches, the offering triples, and if you're gone too far and Charity's sticking around, we're voting her in and you out. So it's awesome just for everything to be taken care of. while I'm gone. So I want to thank just the entire team and entire staff taking care of things uh, while I was gone. If you're ever curious, all the cool things that happen around here are because of them. Uh, They make it happen. And so we're just blessed with just a great team of people here. It's going to be a great day at church. The title of my message is Worship Wars. And I'm going to jump straight into the scripture this morning because I want to share with you what I believe God's laid on my heart for today. We're going to be in John chapter number 12. Uh, We've been walking through the book of John, if you haven't noticed. Two weeks ago, Charity Uh, preached about Lazarus and and, and the what-ifs in life, and a lot of times when tragedy starts to come our ways, ifs start to come into mind. If this happens, then what? If I do this, then what? Uh, Today, we're going to move on beyond there immediately after Lazarus' resurrection, and as I said, we're in John 12, starting in verse number one. Here's what it says. Six days after the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, the Jews were going going away, believing in Jesus. Let's pause right there. That's the weirdest verse I have ever read in the scripture. Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. The religious people there do not like Jesus so much, they think, I'm going to kill Lazarus again. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, what, how are they going to kill the man a second time? And Jesus is right. That's weird to me. I just had to get that out of my, out of the way. Cause otherwise I wouldn't be able to preach the rest of this message. I'd be hung up on that the rest of the day. Verse 12, the next day, the large crowd had come to a feast, heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus sat on a young donkey and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on the donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand when these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd who had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard about this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after 
him. So what in the world is going on? It seems like we have two different stories, two different accounts that that don't quite appear connected one to another. When you read this, this, this account, it doesn't seem like they're connected, yet you can see that there's some real significance to what is going on. The passage says that the disciples did not even understand what they were witnessing with their own eyes, and yet they were able to recognize that there was some significant events unfolding before their eyes. Have you ever been in a moment and you were witnessing it unfold and you realize this moment is going to be significant that I'm never going to forget? There's been some times like that here in the church. I had the opportunity to share last week and and I got to tell the people over there about the time that we ordered a pizza and we tipped the pizza driver. How many of you were here that day that we tipped the pizza driver? That's a day that you will never forget. I will never forget because when we witnessed it, it was significant that God was doing something through this church to bless that individual. There are moments throughout life when you're going to see things and you're going to say to yourself, this is significant. And that is one of the moments that we are in today in John chapter number 12. There are two very significant moments. Now, as I said two weeks ago, Charity talked about how Lazarus was raised from the dead. And now Jesus is moving into what will be the last week of his life. It is the past week. And Jesus goes to Lazarus' house and he's having a meal with Lazarus and his sisters. The next day is going to be known as the triumphal entry where he rides in on a donkey and the crowds come out and welcome him as Messiah. Now there's a lot of different ways that we could take this message. However, I believe what John is trying to get us to understand from these 19 verses is a powerful picture of worship. And here's the big idea of this message. Worship is the purpose of humanity, and whom you worship is going to determine your spiritual destiny. I want that to sink in for just a moment. You and I were created for one reason, that is to worship the Lord. But the problem is, is that we don't always surrender in worship to the Lord. Our allegiance is not always to our creator. However, whom you worship is going to determine your spiritual destiny. And that raises an interesting question. Why does worship determine our spiritual destiny? And here's the answer. Because worship is all about allegiance. I want you to understand this concept. Uh, When we see this passage, what we realize is is that these two groups of people are worshiping. First, Mary is worshiping the Lord. And second, this crowd is coming out and proclaiming him as king. These are two moments of worship, but they're very different from what we normally understand to be worship. When we use the word worship, often we think about what we just did this morning, where we gather together, we raise our voices in proclamation to the Lord, we raise our hands, we we dwell and we think upon the goodness of God, and indeed, that is worship. However, worship is so much more than singing, and I truly believe if you were to boil down what worship is, worship is so much more about allegiance to the Lord than even expressing devotion to the Lord, because you can express a lot of vain devotion. You've had people in your life, I've had people in my life who have broken promises to us. You and I have had people in our life that have kept their promises 
promises to us because they have some allegiance to us, that they want to follow through. And I truly believe that if you look at what worship is, and if you were to give it a word, it is allegiance to someone or to something. And the reason why a lot of Christians are struggling in life is that their worship is off-center. Yes, they come to church, they sing the songs, they shed some tears. Yet if you were to look at where their devotion lies, if you were to look at where their hope lies, if you were to look at what has and captured their heart, many times it's not with Christ. Many times what, where our hope lies is in our ability to perform, our ability to create. A lot of times our hope lies in a job or in a bank account. Sometimes our faith lies in a person or into a group of people or into a pursuit in our own life. And we, we, we don't realize that this is worship, but if we were to look at where our hearts are slanted, if we were to look at the allegiance of our heart, many times it's towards something other than Jesus. Now, does this mean we don't love Jesus? Of course not. If we were to poll the room, I'm sure most of you say, I love Jesus. He has my, my devotion. He is my Lord. However, when we look at the slant of our heart, though, and we look at what keeps us up at night, if we look at what we do when crisis comes, if we look at where we put our hope and our faith, many times it's not towards Christ. Now, when you look at these two groups of people, you see something completely different. Mary could care less what the crowd of people in this house thought of her worship. In spite of ridicule, her devotion was towards Christ. The people welcoming and singing Jesus as king. That's important to understand. They said, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, we don't realize how serious that is, but if you were in first century Palestine and you're singing about Jesus being king, that's a problem when you got the Roman centurion right over here who has sworn allegiance to the emperor. But these people didn't care because their allegiance was to Jesus Christ. So when you look at the life of Christ, one of the things that comes very evident is that there's a lot of conflict that surrounds his life. In fact, as a baby, Simeon held him in his arms and said that this child was going to grow to a man who was going to cause the rising and the falling of many. And now as we read this, this verse, we see this prophecy unfolding. There is literally the raising of Lazarus, and there's a raising of a whole group of people, and yet there's a falling happening at the same time because the religious leaders are here, and they're doing literally everything within their power to undo everything Jesus is doing. They see Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They want to kill Lazarus again. They see the crowd singing. They're trying to bring this down. We see that Mary's bringing worship, and Judas is trying to call that into account. Literally, Jesus is causing one group to rise and another group to fall all at the same time. And what was the rising and the falling all about? It was about one thing. It was about worship. It was about allegiance. It was about who was getting the glory and the honor. Jesus was calling people to worship in spirit and truth, which was the direct opposite of what the religious leaders were trying to accomplish. They were trying to get people to bow down and to worship to their agenda. You see, the big problem that the people had, that the religious leaders had with Jesus, was not his raising the dead. It was not his message. The problem that they had with him is that they were taking market share from them. Because if the people are following Jesus, that meant that they weren't following them. How many of you realize that pride is the root of all of our sins in our life. We look at pride and we say, that's not that big of a deal. Mainly because we are prideful people. Every person who's ever lived is a, has struggled with pride. And what is the problem with pride? The problem with pride is it makes us the king of our own hearts. 
And Jesus came to undo that and said, no, I am the king of your heart. And worship is ultimately coming and saying, Jesus, you have my devotion. I'm bending my knee, not to my desires, but to your lordship. Now, within this text, we see two different acts of worship that are true worship as these people dislodged themselves from the throne of their own heart and they held Jesus as Lord and Savior. Mary teaches us that worship is pouring out our heart and our devotion towards Christ. The crowd teaches us that worship is about giving our allegiance and our loyalty towards Christ. And in both instances, it comes in resistance to the sinner and to the religious. Sinner nor the religious like, like the idea of us applauding Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Not everyone is going to be happy when we pour our worship out to the Lord, and not everyone's going to champion our allegiance. But here's the thing that we have to understand. The depths of our worship will reflect the depths of who Jesus is to us. You have to grasp this concept that if you are created to worship and your worship is ultimately about allegiance to Jesus, then how much you believe in Christ and your understanding of who he is is going to determine the depth of your allegiance towards him. If Jesus is the big angry guy in the sky, then you're going to be stiff and distant from him. If God is your loving God, then you're going to have a natural desire to draw towards him. If he's your Lord and your Savior, then you're going to look to him before you even move in life because you say, God, I want to bring you glory and honor in my life. Mary and the crowd properly recognized Jesus for who he was in this moment, and that was their king, their Savior, their Lord. And so their, their worship was heartfelt and poured out to him. These two moments teach us that, that worship shows the condition of our heart. Worship shows the depths of our understanding of Christ. Worship shows our allegiance, and worship shows the priority of our hearts. And I want to show those things to you through their two examples. The first thing I want to show you is this, that Mary's example of worship teaches us the condition of our hearts and why worship shows our depths of understanding of who Jesus is. Imagine you're in this scene for just a moment. You're Mary, and your brother had just been raised from the dead six days ago. And now the house that you're in is full of people, and the guest of honor is Jesus who raised him from the dead. What would you do in that moment? What would you do in that moment? Suddenly, this sister of the once dead man comes to interrupt dinner. And she has a jar of very expensive perfume. She comes in. The crowd could see that she's visibly emotional in this moment. And she breaks that jar, and she starts to pour this perfume upon Jesus' head. This room that's filled with sweaty, stinky men now is full of the fragrance of this perfume. They watch as tears stream down her face, starts to hit Jesus' feet, and she wipes off the excess with her hair. You don't question why she's doing this if you're in that room. You instantly know why she's doing this. It's obvious. Because Jesus raised her brother from the dead. She sees that he's the resurrection and the life. The problem and the concern I have in my own heart, and I don't know about you, but I know many times I've sat in a worship service and I've never bowed my heart in worship or allegiance to Jesus because I forgot what he has done in my own life. And I'm ashamed of that. To know that I've stood in times, time, time, time again. And didn't raise up my heart or my song to the Lord because I just didn't feel like it. Yet Mary in this moment would not do that. The most extravagant, heartfelt worship she had available to her, she poured out to Jesus. It was a song of praise to her Savior. 
Now, Mary teaches us in this moment how we're to worship. You see, true worship reflects an extravagance in our love towards Christ. Mary was about to worship in the most extravagant way that she had, and she was given every resource, every emotion, every ability upon her to pour it out upon Christ. See, true worship always bows at the feet of Jesus. She comes in, and she sees Jesus, and she takes a knee before him, a posture of humility before him. You see, an attitude of worship means that we consistently stay humble before Christ. When you read the word, you allow it to have authority in your life. When you have an opportunity to build yourself up at the expense of another, you take actions that humble yourself. Mary teaches us that humility is falling at the feet of Jesus and exalting him in every area of our life. So when someone comes up to you and says, you're amazing, our response needs to be, Jesus is amazing through me. I am nothing but a willing vessel. When somebody comes up and pats you on the back, you say, God, thank you for the resources and the abilities in my life to be able to do what you've called me to do. Why? Because he's Lord and we're not. True worship comes from our heart. Mary teaches us that true worship cannot be faked. This moment is real, it's raw, and it's vulnerable. If you've ever had an attitude of worship towards Christ, there's moments in your life where the reality of what you're saying And what you're singing about touches and resonates your heart. There's times when you're singing a song and you realize that song is a song of your life. There's that song and I talk about it. That's why I don't like closing out worship anymore because I get emotional when I think about some of the songs that we sing. And one of the songs we sing is, I've never seen you fail me. Not one minute was I forsaken. When I think about the testimony of my life, they could sing that at my grave because God has never let me down. True worship flows from your heart. True worship always comes at a cost. Mary brought the most expensive thing she had, which was this perfume. She gave her best resources, her best abilities. And if we're going to be true worshipers, it can't happen just in song on Sunday. It's giving the Lord the best of everything we have Monday through Saturday. It's saying, God, you have full access to my life. So while Mary's actions teach us how to worship, her actions also teach us why we worship. True worship reminds us to walk in freedom. If you remember back to Charity's message, when Jesus showed up at the scene, Mary's response was, if you had been here, she was bound to buy what she saw in the moment instead of remembering who Jesus was. And there's going to be times in our life when different events come our way that are going to cost us to question the goodness of God. But in those moments, true worship says, Jesus, I'm walking in freedom, not from what I can see, but I'm trusting you that you and you alone hold me in your hand. The whole house was filled with this perfume. I want you to think about that in a moment. In the previous chapter, Jesus said, move the tombstone away. And their response was, no, we don't want to do that because if we do that, there's going to be a terrible stench. And because Jesus raised her brother from the dead, now she could pour out this perfume that brings the sweetness in our life. You see, worship reminds us of the sweet things that God has done and why we can walk in freedom in our life. So when we get together and we start singing on Sunday morning, we say that your word stands finished and it's final in our life. We don't sing that just because it sounds cute and it rhymes. We sing that because it's true for our life, and it reminds us it's a fragrant offering in our life that we remember what Jesus has done, and we can walk in freedom towards him. Mary's worship came from her heart, and our worship our devotion needs to be consistent and natural. Did Mary in this moment understand what Jesus was about to do in a few days at the cross? Of course not. How could she? 
She didn't know that he was about to be beaten and tortured and crucified. She had never seen it. We don't know if she was there when Jesus told the disciples that. We're not completely sure of what she understood in this moment, what she didn't. But what we do see is that in this moment, Jesus connected it to his death. Her natural worship in this moment pointed to Jesus' life. And when we get comfortable with who Jesus is in our own life, and we're consistently walking through everyday life, pointing to Jesus, other people are going to take notice of what God has done in our own hearts and our own life. The biggest problem with the church today in our country is that a lot of people hear the church talking, but they don't hear the church worshiping. They hear the church critiquing, but they don't see the church living. They see the church pointing out the flaws, but we don't lift up the, what our old flaws and how they're made new in Christ. We worship because what Jesus has done. Now, as a side note, what's really interesting, this is free. This really has nothing to do with worship, but I think it should be pointed out here. I read this in one of my commentaries, and I said, I'm going to put this in there because this just sounds good. We read that in this act of worship, Judas starts to mock and ridicule her act of worship. He does not do this because he's virtuous about worship. He does this because he's a thief and he's missing an opportunity now to steal 300 days wages from Jesus. The very next chapter, the devil is going to enter into Judas. And here's what we need to be careful of in the church. Sometimes our loudest spokesmen are inhabited by devils. Just because someone has a loud voice and what they say sounds spiritual and makes sense doesn't mean that it's worship to the Lord. And so we have to be careful. That was free. Mary's example teaches us that worship shows the condition of our heart and how to worship. Now, what's interesting is you turn to the very next story, and the crowd shows us about worship as allegiance towards the triumphal entry. The crowd is the contrast to Mary. Mary's worship was personal, it was intimate. The crowds, on the other hand, teaches us that worship is about allegiance and priority. And both those things have to go together. Both those things bring balance to our life. Because here's what happens, okay? I'm going to give you a, a little roadmap of where we're about to go. If your worship is always personal and intimate, but it's not about allegiance, then what's going to happen is you're going to sing a song one day, and then you're going to go into life, and something bad's going to happen where you don't see Jesus come through, and then you're going to have to question, am I going to follow him or not? You need both. You need Jesus to be close and personal, but yet, even when you don't see him working the way you think he should, he still deserves your allegiance and your devotion. The crowd teaches us that worship is about allegiance and devotion. The Bible says that the next day, Jesus leaves the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and he heads to Jerusalem. And as he's on his way, the crowd starts to bring palm branches. Now, the palm branch is interesting because it's a national symbol. It's a way of welcoming him as Savior. And the reason why the crowd is coming is because of verse 18. They heard that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Now, we have to remember the historical context here. They are under Roman occupation. These are not free people for their entire life. All they have been taught is that a Savior is coming to ransom them. And now is the moment that their Savior is showing up. Now, when the crowd went out there to worship Jesus, did they understand that he was going to be a spiritual Savior or a political warrior? I don't really know. That's not the point. The point, though, is that in spite of the Romans standing right there at a moment's notice that they are willing to slaughter anyone who stands in front of emperor, they say, Jesus, you are my king. The Romans are very well known for just crushing uprisings. 
You've heard of different times that people have rebelled against the Roman Empire and they're just crucified tens of thousands of people along a road just to prove a point. So when they go out with palm branches, a sign of the national freedom, and they're saying Jesus is the king, these people are making a declaration of allegiance and they're making a declaration of priority in their own life. And here's what we have to understand. True worship always requires our allegiance to Jesus as king. Now, when I'm talking about pouring out our heart and our devotion a moment ago, maybe that doesn't resonate with you. You might think that you're not naturally an emotional person. You're like, I I get why Mary did what she did, but I don't see myself shedding a bunch of tears and all that. However, worship doesn't always have to be emotional. The crowd was worshiping Jesus with a bending knee of allegiance. Who are you living for? Who are you living for? Are you living for Christ? Are you living for yourself? Raises a very interesting question. Where does my priority lie? When given the opportunity to honor Jesus or myself, where's my allegiance? When given the opportunity to sin or maintain self-control, where is my allegiance? When given the opportunity to serve Christ or to serve myself, where is my allegiance? Now, we need to be careful with this question because a lot of people are on the polar opposite. Some people have very emotional responses to worship and they think their allegiance is to Christ, and yet they go out and they live like the world Monday through Saturday. There are some people who are very unemotional. They've never shed a tear, never sang the song, and yet they also, too, would look at their life and say, you know what, I am, I'm living faithful. I'm living for Christ. It's about allegiance to your heart. Why is Jesus worthy of my allegiance? Well, the answer is very clear in in this chapter. Because Jesus is king. Jesus is king. It's easy to overlook the small detail of the Old Testament prophecy. But John says this. He says, Zechariah prophesied that Jesus, the king, was going to ride in on the donkey. And that's how everybody was going to know. Now, that might seem like a small detail, but when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on the donkey, what he's saying is that he is God. Of all the prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament, there are hundreds of them. He fulfilled every single one. He was born in in Bethlehem to the tribe of Judah. He had to live in Egypt for a while. His birthplace, all the children were massacred. They had a messenger go before him. He rode into Jerusalem on the donkey. He was betrayed. His betrayer would buy a field of blood. He'd be crucified. All of these things were prophesied about Jesus before he was born. The improbability of anybody fulfilling those prophecies is next to none. In fact, I listened to a statistician that said if Jesus fulfilled just eight of the prophecies about the Messiah, the likelihood of one guy being able to do that would be one to the 17th power. Now, I'm not very good at math. I was homeschooled. So let me tell you what that means in like layman's terms. If you had one to the 17th power of silver dollars, check this out. It would fill up the state of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars. Okay. Now, the probability of one in 17th to the 17th power would be taking a blindfold man, marking one of those silver dollars, turning him loose in the state of Texas, letting him walk around, bending over, and picking up the right coin blindfolded. That is one to the 17th power. And that's just eight prophecies, and Jesus fulfilled all of these. What does that tell us? He is God. Now, you might love him, you might hate him. You might like him, you might not. But you need to look into his life and say, is he God? Because if he is then he deserves our worship. The crowd worshiped because Jesus was the king. You might not feel like you have any reason to worship. You might not see anything Jesus has done in your life. But he's the king. 
and he deserves our allegiance. We make worship far too much about us from time to time. I don't like the song. I don't like the singing. I'm not in the mood. However, when you look at scripture, it's never about us. It's about Jesus. He's our king. He saves us. He heals us. He places his spirit inside of us. He protects us. And he watches over us. That's why we worship, because of who he is. I want to close with this if the worship team wants to come back. What's really interesting about this passage is that it says the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus and Lazarus. In the middle of all this worship, the gospel writer makes it abundantly clear over and over again that some people are not going to like the fact that other people are worshiping Jesus. And they want to kill him. Why would anybody want to kill Jesus? And why would they want to kill Lazarus? Because they are a threat to Jesus. And here's the thing we have to understand about Jesus. He was very clear. He said, you're either for me or you're against me. You're either sowing with me or you're scattering. And the truth is we either are in love with Jesus and he has our allegiance and our worship, or by default, we are his enemy. When we don't give Jesus our heart and our allegiance, then we're always going to view Jesus as our enemy. We're always going to look at Jesus as a list of things to do and things not to do. And there's no middle ground. So who are you worshiping? If someone was to look at your life and your heart, where is your allegiance? Where is your allegiance? There's a reason why I keep using this word allegiance. You might be saying, okay, why, what's this all about? Why do you keep using the same word over and over and over again? Why are you equating allegiance to worship? Because I learned the hard way one time that worship is about allegiance. And I feel like God wanted me to tell you this story this morning. There's times that as a pastor, let me phrase that, almost every time as a pastor, I'm going to let you into a little bit of an insight. Almost every time as a pastor, I stand up here to preach and I'm pumped for the message. You don't know my, you don't know my story or my study habits or processes. I pray and get prepared way in advance. And then the week of, I go back and I study on Wednesday and I get fired up for the message. I'm like, ooh, this is going to be good. I'm excited about this. Now you might not like it, but I like it. Okay. And that's all that matters. As long as I like it, that's, you know. But I'm going to be honest with you. I sat down for this message. And I'm like, I'm not feeling this one. I'm not feeling this one. So I was praying all week. I was like, man, Lord, what, what's it about? Why this message? Why this message? And I was reminded of one of the most powerful times of worship in my own life three or four years ago. Several years ago, Charity and I was, uh, we were in a battle. And we felt like the Lord had told us to do something that was going to drastically change our family. And that was to adopt a little girl. There was a little girl in our church at Vertigris that needed adopted. And frankly, it's a long story. I don't have time to go on all the details, but they came to us and said, hey, would you do this? And you want to know my first response? I was a good Christian man. I said, no. I said, no, I don't want to adopt. I said, we, we're renting this house. We're trying to move. Don't, it's just not going to do that right now. And so I started praying about it. And I felt like God changed my heart on that. And I don't know if you've ever had a situation where you really didn't want to do something and then God comes in and starts to change your heart. I mean, change my heart. When I say I didn't want to do it, I was, I was being serious. I didn't want to do it. And so I ended up saying yes to God. And we started going down this process of getting prepared. And I talked to all the caseworkers. It looked like this was a done deal. I mean, this girl was in a desperate situation. Um, of course, being in the church and knowing the family very intimately, knew the child. I mean, the child was in her home you know, vicariously through the families. I mean, we just, you know what it's like when you're in church. You, 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 you uh, 
you fall in love with the people that you're around, etc. And so uh, this goes on for 9, 10, 11 months where we're getting prepared for this. It's a very slow process. Uh, and then one day we get a call where it looks like this whole thing's about to crumble. And it was a Wednesday, Thursday, something like that. And, and just devastating news. You start falling in love with this little kid that somebody else asks you to take into your home. You don't want to. God then changes your mind on the deal. And, and now here it looks like it's going to fall apart. And so I remember very vividly, Charity uh, had to go to work. She was teaching at the time. Her and Knox went to school. And I'm just, I'm praying in the living room. I'm like, God, you have got to work this. I didn't want to do this. And then you asked me to do it. And now I'm saying, yes, I fell in love with this little kid. And now it looks like it's going to fall apart. And the song that came on was King of My Heart. It was real popular at the time. And it basically said the words, you know, let the king of my heart be the mountain where I run, the fountain where I drink from. Oh, he is my song. Let the king of my heart be the wind inside my sails, the anchor in the waves. And so I started singing that song. And you know what happened in that moment? Faith rose up inside of me. Faith rose up inside of me. I said, you know what? This is going to happen. God told me to do it, didn't want to do it, changed my mind. If he did all that stuff, then everything's going to be just fine. And so in that moment, faith rose up in my heart. I said, everything's going to be good. In fact, of course, the song is, you are good. You never let me down. And I said, yes, I wept in my living room that day. I don't, I don't, I don't get to too many moments in my life where I just weep. And then you know what happened? The thing fell apart. Uh, you know my family. We don't have a little girl in our home found a family member. She was able to go live with her family member. The whole thing fell apart. Very, very, very frustrating. Fast forward four months and we were at a conference where the people who made the song famous are singing that song. I remember standing there and my arms were crossed. I was like, I'm not singing this song. I'm not singing this song. It wasn't that I was mad or angry at God. I trusted his plans. But I was like, man, I sang that song and faith rose up in my heart. I don't think I can sing this song. And what hit me in that moment was this. I had to ask the question, does Jesus have my allegiance or does he just have my emotion? Is he really the king of my heart or not? Is he only the king of my heart when I get my way? Is he only the king of my heart when I see things go out the way that I want. the only king of my heart when he comes through for me at the 11th hour, or is he the king of my heart when I don't see him working in the way that makes any sense in my life? Does he have my allegiance or not? Does he have my allegiance or not? So I started singing that song. Here's what I, I feel like for you. There are moments Worship is going to be about allegiance. You're not going to feel the song. But you have to come to grips and say, Jesus, are you my king or not? Because that's what worship is about.